Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And we'll read verses 22 through 24. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Several weeks ago, uh, when we heard that we were going to go through the fruit of the Spirit, I got pretty excited. I got, I got pretty excited. I mean, these are things that we know that we are taught from a young age. We even learned the song in Sunday school or, we, or maybe at camp. And we, we are taught to pray for these things and to pursue these things. But the sermon series hasn't quite gone how I expected. Um, see, our, it, it actually went more like a game of basketball I've played a couple weeks ago or a couple years ago. Uh, our college friends, we used to go to the park and to play pickup ball with, uh, you know, the local locals in Pittsburgh, and I'm one of the short guys, so I play defense up at the top of the key. I leave the swatting, and I leave all of that to Connor, okay? Connor can do that part down low. I, I'll, I'll pick up the guy at the top, and I've played quite a bit of basketball. It's my favorite sport growing up. This is something that I know. I'm familiar with it. Just like these verses, we know these verses, especially by now. We're familiar with them. It's the first possession of the game. I'm ready. I'm, I'm in my defense position. I, I know what's coming, you know, hopefully to get a pass, but that's not what happens. <laughs> my opponent, instead of passing or dribbling around me, he runs straight first right into me, and his head hits the side of my nose, just completely shifts the nose to the side of my face. <laughs> I remember feeling up and down on my nose and going, oh, no, <laughs> this is really, really broken. Like, not just a little bit. This is really broken. Well, I had to have surgery to get that nose fixed. So if you've been looking up here thinking, there's something wrong with his face, I can't quite figure it out, it's my nose. <laughs> but with this sermon series, you know, I was expecting that normal, regular game of basketball, right? But it's not quite what I've gotten. I was expecting to hear of things that I know and things that I've experienced and things that I'm just excelling at, but that's not what I've gotten. It's been the unexpected. It's been the Lord showing me all the surgery my heart needs. The old headbutt to the nose. <laughs> Not in a bad way, but in a good way, a, a humbling way, a way that pushes me to look closer at Jesus. I say these things to you because I'm, I'm so unworthy. I don't have this all together. I don't come before you as a professional in faithfulness. I come before you as a beggar, before a king. Most of the works I even read in preparation for this week covered material and, and life experiences that I'm yet to experience, that I'm yet to know. And I say this because I would be unfaithful if I pretended to be someone I'm not. So i got to be honest and show that I'm only here by the sovereign grace of God, the God that has been faithful to his people. And that he has allowed us to meet together again as he brings us to the fruit of faithfulness. I hope I'm not the only one that has seen all where the Lord needs to do surgery. I hope I'm not the only one that can see where God can continue to grow and develop these fruit in their lives. So let's read Galatians 5, 22 through 24 together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things... There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. God, you are awesome and mighty. 
You are above all things, before all things. God, you are so good to us. And this morning, I I pray that we see the faithfulness that you have brought to humanity. God, we praise you. I pray that your word would speak through me. Help me get out of the way and so people can behold your majesty. Awesome are you, God. Holy are you. And in your precious name, amen. Well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't those the words we all long to hear when the time comes for us to be face-to-face with the Lord? I mean, there is an overwhelming longing for this response from the Lord when we finally come before him. I mean, there would be nothing more joy-bringing than being before the creator of the entire universe and for, to hear him say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. But before we ever make it there, we must know what faithfulness means. Faithfulness is everywhere in the New Testament. Every single book in the New Testament uses a form of this word in it. And God, using this word that many times, should show us just how important it is to him. So faithfulness is the state of being consistently dependable, trustworthy, and loyal. The state of being consistently dependable, trustworthy, and loyal. It's a time and time again, not a one-off. See, this is, faithfulness is proven by day to day, month to month, year to year. It's not a single event. A faithful person is one that is firm and can be counted on. A person that can be looked to in all their relationships. One who is honest and ethical in all their affairs. Daniel, in the Old Testament, is a great example of this. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, it states, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Daniel was faithful. And faithfulness means that he lacked error and fault. This means the faithful person is honest and considerate. They're not negligent or corrupt. Daniel was found faithful even from his rivals. And he serves a good example for us. But friends, the best example of faithfulness is the Lord himself. Before we get to the call of faithfulness, which we'll get to, and we'll see three parts of the call of faithfulness, we must first see the Lord of faithfulness. This brings us to our takeaway. Are you ready? God's faithfulness produces faithfulness in us. God's faithfulness produces faithfulness in us. When we see the faithfulness and the majesty and the holiness of God as his people, we are motivated to pursue faithfulness to him. So we must know the Lord of faithfulness. The Lord of faithfulness. Faithfulness, it's one of the mighty attributes of God. He's perfectly faithful. And to speak of God and his work, it would be impossible to not address his faithfulness. It's who he is. Just like the scriptures say God is love and God is good, it also screams God is faithful. The psalmist in Psalm 36.5 sings, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 33.4 sings, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. 
All of his work is done in faithfulness. Deuteronomy 32, 3-4 states, Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Church, for a moment can we behold the majesty of our God? Holy is he who has saved. Great is his faithfulness. No one is like him. Mighty is he. He sits on the unshakable throne that cannot be conquered. And our God has been so, so good to us. Even in this room, we could sit down and hear story after story of how God has been faithful. Psalm 119, 90 says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. Friends, do you feel the faithfulness of God? Do you know God's faithfulness? His faithfulness endures to all generations, even this one. Trust in the Lord's faithfulness. Look to the Lord's faithfulness. Look to him who has always kept his promises. Even Israel, in the time of Joshua, they felt the Lord's faithfulness. Joshua 21, 43-45 states, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every single, not a single word that the Lord gave to Israel failed. Every single one of them came to pass. That is incredible. Only God can do that. Every single thing he said came to be. That That should make us trust him more. We should be able to look at that and say, man, holy is the Lord who always provided for Israel. Because, friends, in 10,000 years, we'll say the same thing. In eternity, we will look upon and sing to the Lord like the psalmist in Psalm 145, 13, and say, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words. And kind in all his works. He is faithful. And the entire Bible is a testament to his faithfulness. But faithfulness, as we see, is perfected in the works of Jesus. Jesus himself fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies, and that's a conservative number. But we are entirely dependent upon the faithfulness of Jesus. When we're found guilty in our sin and without life, when we are found at the bottom of the ocean, dead in our sins, we are entirely dependent upon the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus that led him to submit to the cross, to lay down his life for his enemies. The faithfulness of Jesus that brought him down off his throne and into a grave. The faithfulness of Jesus that rose again the third day, conquering sin and death. Hebrews 2.9 says it this way, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death 
for everyone. The faithfulness of Jesus. Christian, do you see how dependent you are on the faithfulness of Jesus? We are entirely dependent upon the Lord's faithfulness. He is the one who has existed before all things and hold all things together. We are entirely dependent upon him for our salvation, for deliverance from temptation, for our sanctification, and for the forgiveness of sins, and for deliverance through times of suffering. Jerry Bridges says we can easily see that every aspect of the Christian life rests upon the faithfulness of God. Do you rest upon the faithfulness of God? Or are you resting in yourself? Repent and believe in him who is faithful. Confess your sin, for he is faithful to forgive. And as we behold the faithfulness of our God, he calls us to faithfulness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, where we will see the call to faithfulness. The call to faithfulness. There will be three parts in this call to faithfulness, but read with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Ancient navies couldn't always rely on the wind to take them where they needed to be. The massive water vessels often had a level under the deck that contained hundreds of men rowing with massive oars. Oftentimes, these galleys, they would acquire slaves to take the role of what is called an under-rower. And these under-rowers had no choice other than to row. They were chained to their seats with nowhere to go. They had to row together and at the captain's beat to be successful. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. And that word that Paul uses for servants literally means under rower. This, these men were not envied. They were despised and menial in the eyes of all. These were subordinates, the unimportant, riding on the bottom of the boat. Yet this is the first part of the call to faithfulness that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 4. It's who we are. Who we are. Verse 1, who we are. Servants and stewards of the faithful one. He says we're servants of Christ, servants of the faithful one, the subordinates that are subject to him. We're not to pretend that we are something that we are not. Paul in this context is speaking specifically to Christian leaders and ministers, but we should not be slow to apply this to ourselves. 
Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters, for either you'll hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the question we must ask this morning is, who are you serving? Who are we serving? Who or what is your life devoted to? Everywhere you look, you'll find people preaching the gospel of self-love. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him in a world full of self-service and self-idolatry. Jesus calls us to be servants and stewards, to be selfless. To be a steward is to be a loyal house manager. They don't own the property, but they supervise it. They take care of all of, and do all that the owner requests of them. And in 1 Peter 4.10, it calls each of us to be good stewards. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. We must take what the Lord has given us and do with it what he has requested. Friends, the Lord has entrusted us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God came to seek and save the lost. To steward it means to take this good news and to marinate in it, to live by it, and to share it with all those around us. Who has the Lord placed in your life that needs to hear this good news? What's holding you back from being a good steward and telling them about the good news of Jesus? I'm reminded of the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah describes in chapter 6 that he saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. And he describes that the train of his robe filled the entire temple. He says, above the Lord, there was two angels. And each of these angels, they were called seraphim, and they had six wings each. And with two wings, the angel covered his face. And with two wings, the angel covered his body. And with the other two wings, the angel used to fly. And the angels, they would shout one to another. They would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response to seeing the the magnificent God, to seeing the faithful one, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah there was commissioned to take a message of God to the people. The message was kind of a brutal one. God says, they have hardened hearts. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears that will not hear. He says, and you will not turn back to the Lord. You're stuck in your ways. And Isaiah looks to God and he says, God, for how long shall I bring this message? And God says to Isaiah, until the city is a desolate waste. Until the houses are burned down, until the people are gone, until there are no inhabitants. God told Isaiah that his entire ministry was going to basically look like a failure. I mean, if we took our gauges for success and how we think today, and we go back to Isaiah, we'd say, well, how many people did he get to attend the temple? We'd say, well, how big was his budget? But could he hold the attention of the crowd? No. They couldn't even understand him. We'll say, well, how big was this church building? It was burning to the ground. See how it doesn't make sense? 
See how our, our, the way we think about these things, it just doesn't seem to make sense with what God has said. So why was Isaiah successful? Why was Isaiah successful? Because by our terminology, he was a failure. Friends, Isaiah was successful because he was faithful. He was faithful to what God had called him to do. And the good news is, that hasn't changed. Even today, we are successful by faithfulness. Look at verse 2 with me again. The second part of the call to faithfulness. This is what we do. It says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. It is required. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's a requirement. God's people must be found faithful. And that is success in the Christian walk, faithfulness. The American dream, it may look like a big family, a nice job, a new car, a huge house, a fat 401k, and a vacation home out east or down south. But the Christian dream looks like unswerving faithfulness. God's people must be found faithful. Because God himself is faithful. When was the last time we used faithfulness as an indicator of our success? When was the last time we looked around this room and said, things aren't going how I thought they'd go. But we said, but we're faithful. Friends, let's focus on faithfulness. This is not an American way of thinking. But it's a biblical way of thinking. And this is good news. Why, you may ask? Because faithfulness is attainable for every believer. Regardless of your income, regardless of your social status, regardless of your popularity or your education or your intelligence, faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit from Jesus is attainable by anyone who calls on him as Lord. All of you can be successful. Why? Because we can all be faithful. But even as a fruit of the Spirit, it's still something that needs to be pursued, something that needs to be worked towards. This fruit, as delicate as it is, needs to be cultivated. But how can we cultivate the fruit of faithfulness? John Sanderson and Aaron Manikoff, they give us several ways to cultivate this fruit. I'm going to give you five. I'm going to give you five ways to cultivate the, the fruit of faithfulness. The first is to meditate on the scriptures. These are going to go quick. They're going to be on the screen for you. Meditate on the scriptures. Know the scriptures. We can't be faithful to a God if we don't know what he has said. Two is to fear the Lord. Think about the Lord correctly. Fear the Lord. The third is strive for obedience. Four is realize that Christ will return. And five is to rely on the Spirit. The reality is, is that this is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of ourselves. We must look up to the Lord and rely on Him as we strive to grow more faithful. Our own strength, our own power, and our own will, that will only lead us right back to where we were in sin. But look to the Lord. Know the Lord. God's faithfulness 
will produce faithfulness in us. John Sanderson puts it this way. When our attention is focused on him, a steadiness and dependability develops as his claims and his law govern our actions. When the object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ, when the object of our faith conforms to reality, our faithfulness will multiply. And that reality is that he will return again. John in Revelation describes, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Friends, that's Jesus. He's called Faithful and True. This is the third part to the call of faithfulness. It is what we look forward to. What we look forward to. Read verses 3 through 5 in 1 Corinthians 4 with me again. It says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Only God can judge me. We have heard this statement be proclaimed by many in an attempt to excuse this or that behavior. The idea is that only the Lord has authority to judge, so no one else can judge me now. This attempt to let anything go because the Lord is the ultimate and final judge simply does not match with what this text really says. The Lord being the final judge actually means that nothing is hidden. It means that nothing is looked over and that nothing is simply dropped. With the Lord as our judge, we should actually be all the more diligent to be found faithful. Excusing sin because God judges simply foolishness. But the Lord isn't the only judge that we may face. In fact, Paul talks about facing two other judges. Look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul realizes that public criticism should not be overvalued. We cannot be motivated by the public approval or disapproval. Paul goes so far to say that we shouldn't even look at our own judgment of ourselves. Why? Because Paul realizes that the self is so often too blind or too partial or too indulgent to be a benefit. What ends up happening is we either paint ourselves to be prettier than we really are or we push ourselves into self-pity. MacArthur puts it this way, human verdict on Paul's life is not the one that matters, even if it's his own. How often do we spend too much time Worrying about the judgment of others. How often do we let the possibility of someone thinking something negative hinder our faithfulness to God? Now Paul is not saying that self-examination is bad. No, don't, don't hear that. But he is saying to be motivated by the judgment that matters. Let's be motivated by the God who saves, not the feeble thoughts of men. In verse 4 Paul says that he isn't aware of any ongoing, unrepentant sin in his life. 
but that still doesn't make him free of charge. Can we say the same thing as Paul? So often, there are things in our life that we have hold on to for years that we go back to time and time again, and it's unrepentant sin hindering our ability to be faithful. It's insanity. We must remember Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's freedom in the cross. Run to it. And when, when the Lord comes, we'll not receive condemnation, but we'll receive commendation. Just like verse 5 teaches us. The Lord will bring all things, every action and every motive, and we will receive praise from the Lord. That's what God's children can look forward to. The well done, good and faithful servant. Church family, may we pursue the fruit of faithfulness from the spirit of God. Behold the goodness of your king. Hold tight to the scriptures that teach his faithfulness. And allow God's faithfulness to produce faithfulness in us. Let's pray.